Hi. Welcome to Nocturna, a horror podcast. Today, you're invited to the edge of reality to witness the horrible things that lie beyond its horizon. We'll explore a captivating tapestry of dread and cosmic terror, where the intensity of our descriptions may elicit a range of emotions, from spine-tingling thrill to disquieting unease. As we delve into the depths of these stories, we invite listeners to embrace the full spectrum of sensation that may be evoked, understanding that the chilling nature of our content may both exhilarate and unsettle, depending on individual preferences. As you embark on this immersive journey with Nocturna, prepare to surrender to the captivating tales that both stir the depths of your imagination and awaken the dormant fears within you. Episode 2, Oil on Canvas. The story you're about to hear is a work of fiction. Probably. I've always found more comfort in things than people, I suppose. I never married and spent my youth, though it's now long past, buried mostly among the towering bookshelves of the Salem Public Library. I saved money from my summer jobs down on the Cape for buses into Boston and New York to see museums rather than go out drinking with friends. Sculpture, pottery, it didn't matter. I even recall being taken by a collection of German tapestries that made its way to the Met in the late 70s. It was painting, however, that captured my affections most fully. The deliberate blending of the neoclassicalists and the haphazard brushstrokes of the impressionists that followed them sat not as opponents in my eyes, but as siblings and the rich family that I've always felt so privileged to be able to view. Even the sometimes repetitive medieval period reminds me that a single mother and child subject can be imagined and reimagined over and over again. Art, like the universe it was born in, is infinite and dynamic and inevitable. I never created it myself. I'm afraid I don't have much of a mind's eye. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to it. I think sometimes man has a tendency to admire what he's wished he could see in himself. The question was never if I would find my employment and belonging at a museum, it was which one. As luck had it, when I moved to Terrytown, the Howard H. Pike Museum of Art was getting ready to open. The media magnate said his mission statement was to bring cosmopolitan enrichment to the Hudson Valley's granite cliffs. He was converting his father's summer home to a museum open to the public of Westchester County, free of charge. I began my employment there before the building was even open for guests. There were a number of new wings being built onto the proud house overlooking the Hudson. A few months before its doors officially welcomed the world, I made my way up to the museum for the first time. I turned off the highway that ran alongside the river and drove the winding uphill road through dense trees. As I stood in the great building's shadow, I could feel purpose and hope run through me like the rushing river below. Those earliest days were a blur of joy, and I still think fondly about the lunches I took overlooking the valley from the hill on which the museum proudly stood. I think if I were an artist, I would have loved to paint it. I started out working at the information desk and would routinely spend my breaks walking through some of the finest European art in existence. When I had moved on from sitting at a desk handing out maps, I worked as a docent for a number of years, but I got to the point where I just couldn't take it anymore. 
you'd be surprised how few people know how to properly behave in a museum. I'm not just talking about children on field trips or bored teenagers. I watched grown adults, there entirely of their own volition, constantly disrespect the sanctity of the art and the environment. There have been not one, but four instances where, save for the invention of museum putty, I might have been blighted witness to the shattering of pottery from antiquity because someone was so idiotically incapable of keeping track of their own limbs. That's not to mention the countless fingers pressed upon Monet's, for God's sake. I'm surprised any one of those guests was able to make it up the winding roads to the museum with such a clear lack of spatial awareness, depth perception, or respect that there are rules that society ought to follow. I chose to move into security in 2009. Mostly nights. Sure, the lighting was worse, but I got to be alone with the paintings. There's something about the sound of my boots echoing off the walls that was like the song of a bird to me. Full of life. To work there was to be Adam in the garden. Mr. Pike's personal connection was vast and beautiful, and given his name and wealth, he was able to secure nearly any traveling collection he wished to have displayed in the halls of the estate. It was one evening around 2011 as I ushered the last guests out of the halls that a man stood looking at an early 16th century portrait of Clement VII fully ignoring me. He was in his mid-twenties, with greasy brown hair, and he wore a well-tailored gray suit. Looking at his hands and neck, it appeared he was covered in tattoos reminiscent of the Renaissance paintings of the hall in which he stood. I repeated that the museum was closing and that he was going to have to leave when he turned to face me. He smiled and met my eyeline, and although his face was kind and even at around six foot he was still shorter than me, I still found something about him to be utterly menacing. His eyes seemed so dark. Darker than dark, like a shark's or something. He informed me that he wouldn't be leaving as he was scheduled for a meeting with Mr. Pike in the South Wing and was wondering if I'd be so kind as to show him the way. With each word he spoke, it felt as if I got a little bit smaller. Like the room was filling up with people and I could hardly move. It was only when he turned back to the painting that I was able to relax and breathe deeply again. I finally answered that yes, I could show him the way. I still somehow maintained that subtle feeling of claustrophobia as we made our way down the halls that now seemed much too narrow. I led him through the first floor sculpture hall, which had on display a beautiful collection of a dozen matching Greek oil flasks detailing the labors of Heracles. Each one stood on a solitary pillar. It was here that I noticed a shift in how the man carried himself. If you work in a museum, you learn to identify someone who belongs in one. You know, someone who knows how to act around things of value. As soon as we entered the room, I watched his long arms stretch behind his back and his hands clasp each other, while his steps fell into a single file line instead of a side-by-side -side pair. Normally, it's the kind of thing I spent all day wishing I'd see as a docent. This relaxed me a bit, to be reminded I was in the company of a fellow lover of art. We were passing the display when he took a turn to a flask near the corner of the room. Seeing that he was looking to stop and admire for a moment, I joined him and found us standing in front of the flask depicting the Hydra. A moment later, he spoke again. It's interesting that it's the one we remember, isn't it? 
He turned to me again, and I felt another surge of anxiety that I could not at all place. I tried to respond, but swallowed my words and settled on a nod. He continued, kind of ironic, I think, that it continues to rear its head all these centuries later. I guess some things just have a way of coming back. He let out a light chuckle that upset me for some reason. Everything about him pointed to him being someone I would normally feel so comfortable around, but the lump in my throat stuck with me as my chest tightened even more. I kept looking at the flask as I felt his eyes on me. I could feel where they fell somehow, like my body was pressed against another person's. After a moment, he suggested we move on and he began to exit the room. My chest had reached a level of such tightness that I could feel my back beginning to spasm before he took a step away from me and the sensation disappeared. Some not insignificant part of me thought it would be best to turn and run, but the remaining portion of myself with sense quieted it quickly. We arrived at the South Wing meeting room where Mr. Pike could be found. In his retirement, he was a more common face around the museum and we had grown to know each other somewhat well. He introduced his guest, of whom I had not thought to ask his name, as Thomas Abbott. Mr. Abbott was apparently an art collector of no small renown and a liaison for a number of museums in both Europe and North America. He was excited to bring an entire exhibit of Renaissance paintings that had, as of yet, not seen American soil. After he was introduced, our guest stepped closer to me to thank me for escorting him. I smiled as the force of his personality beat down upon me. I thought if I spent another moment in Mr. Abbott's presence, I might be sick or faint, but not wanting to appear rude to a man that had veritably done nothing more than make me feel a bit uncomfortable by doing nothing at all, I made some statement about how wonderful his collection must be and politely excused myself. A month passed, and I neither heard nor saw anything of the art collector or his wares. It was while finishing up a graveyard shift, however, that I heard the rumble of vans in the driveway. Loading in 20 or 30 paintings were a group of about seven men and women that moved with such synchronicity that I would have assumed they had rehearsed the drop-off. Normally, moving in an exhibit, even a small one, is at least a half-week affair. They were out within the hour. There's a skill to designing an exhibit, you know? It's not like hanging pictures in your living room. You want a focal point, but without drawing away too much from anything else. You want a variety of color, but the pieces still have to be linked and have balance. Whoever decided how to place these paintings, in my opinion, was nothing short of an artist. Placards were up sometime in the afternoon, and my heart fluttered with excitement the way it did when a new exhibit was within my grasp. The art was all Italian, 15th or 16th century. There were a number of biblical scenes as well as a rendition of the birth of Venus that I hadn't seen yet. All of them bore the names of painters with which I wasn't familiar, and the central painting of the collection identified no artist at all. It was titled The River God. Around 1540, Florence, oil on canvas. It was striking. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a Renaissance painting in real life, but the colors are all a bit muted. Time takes its toll on all things, but if I didn't know any better, I would say that this painting had been spared. It was the image of a nude man with glowing orange eyes. 
I'm assuming the titular figure. The scene was split along the surface of the river, which I remember thinking felt very modern. Under the surface, the river god lurked, his features reminiscent of Poseidon. In the background, the river bank was lit under a golden sunset. An unnamed woman washed her clothes in the river. It was the kind of painting where the eyes followed you everywhere. You tend to get used to that sort of thing in a museum, but there was something about the figure's iridescent pupilless stare that sent a chill through me. Driving home down the river became a very uncomfortable thing if I had to do it at sunset. The glints of light on the water's surface reflecting up onto the eastward bank each felt like some unholy eye, and I was unable to shake the feeling of being watched. The feeling of being preyed upon. After a few weeks, the nightmares began. I would find myself walking along the shores of the Hudson. I would see the woman from the painting washing her clothes, and two bright orange lights in the water moving closer to her. I would call out, only for her to turn to me just as the river god chose to act. A wave like a striking viper would overtake her, and she would be gone, leaving only her basket among a dissipating foam that washed away with the current. I would awake drenched in such sweat it was as if I had crawled from the river. I will admit I began to shirk some of my duties after that. I was supposed to walk every hall and check on every exhibit in the museum, but I could no longer bring myself to pace that second story gallery. If I were going to enter it, it would need to be an extreme circumstance. And so, such a circumstance presented itself. It was near morning. The part of the overnight shift that I tended to cut myself off from any additional caffeine when I heard a noise. It was a soft, steady whisper at first. Not words, but almost wind-like. It began to grow louder and fill the space before taking on some sort of glassy or metallic sound. It took me some time to place before I was able to recognize it as the sound of a sink or bath running. I thought at first perhaps a pipe had burst, but as I walked around in search of its source, I realized the noise was coming from the second floor of the West Wing. There is no plumbing on the second floor of the West Wing, and our fire suppression system did not use water. I should have left then. I should have left the moment I knew that this sound was coming from Abbott's gallery, but I was determined to give myself the luxury of a logic to explain away all the strange things I had been feeling the past months. I ascended the stairs as water started rushing down them. The splashes were far louder than the running of a sink now as they made impact with each of the steps. As I rounded into the gallery, my eardrums were beat by the sound of a vicious torrent a volume only reachable by the crushing weight of uncountable gallons of water. It was at this point I looked upon the painting I knew was the culprit. The river god, with his submerged body, leered at me as he had always done, but I looked on in horror as I saw gallons and gallons of water pouring out of the frame like a waterfall. The water was almost up to my knees at this point and moving swiftly. The stone floor had become slippery and the speed of the current nearly knocked me under. With only one sensible choice to make, I finally ran. In a flash, I was down the hallway, nearly losing myself into the water as I slid down the stairs and into the lobby. It seemed as if the water itself was chasing me. 
As I flung the doors open, the vile orange sunrise lit up my aqueous pursuer as if to remind me how not alone I was. I ran straight to my car and never went back. I drove home, packed a bag, and got as far away as I could from the Hudson. I decided I would send for my nephew to clear my things from my home. All I knew, all I know, is that that valley is not safe for me, and it might not be safe for anyone else. I watched the papers and checked for articles, but I could never find any public acknowledgement of the damage. I live in the desert now, with a well on my property. There isn't much art out here, but I think I am well past my days of joy or intellectualism. I live in a state that existed before man had the imagination to put paint to walls. Survival is my only interest. So I research, and I ready myself. Because when it rains here, it tends to flood. And the river god cannot be far behind. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nocturna. If you enjoyed what you heard, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. You can keep up with the show on social media at Nocturna Podcast. You can also head to nocturnapodcast.com. And if you want to support even more, take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That feedback is one of the best ways to help the show grow. And most importantly, tell a friend. Just make sure they can handle it. Thanks again. Oh, and stay safe. You never know what's out there.